So for a few, uh, a few months now, I guess, we've been in the book of Nehemiah when I've been preaching. Um, and last time we got to the very midpoint of the book, kind of brought one whole section to a conclusion, but then it's opened us up into the second half of the book. So the focus of the first half of the book is Nehemiah and his journey back to a ruined, desolate Jerusalem. Uh, but with God's help, uh, he and the people focus on rebuilding the walls. Uh, and that's been the, the focus in the first half of the book, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. So once again, it could be a vibrant city where God's people could live and work and raise a family and worship and be a community uh, together. And now as we head into the second half of the book, the focus shifts from uh, rebuilding the walls, because that's now been done. They're up, they've been completed. And the focus now is on rebuilding that sense of community, being a people together, community uh, life, and not just any old community, any old people, but a people who are for the glory of God. And, uh, and so we're going to look at what happens in Nehemiah uh, chapter 8 as we head into the second half of this book. I'm going to uh, read the first chunk of this chapter and make an apology in advance that this time I'm not sure I've prepared myself very well to read a few of the lists of names that crop up in this chapter. Um, so I'm going to ask someone else to. Uh, any, any takers? Now, here we go. Uh, we're going to start, well, it's beginning of chapter 8, but the very last section of the last verse of, of chapter 7 uh, to begin with. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women and the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattithiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Marcia. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshullam. Yes, <laughs> Ezra opened the book. No, it's okay. That's, uh, <laughs> uh, all the people could, we've got another list to come, so. <laughs> all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Barney, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Marcia, Kelita, Azaria, Jozebad, Hanan and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day 
is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. There we go. Uh, my microphone feels a little bit loud. I don't want to deafen people. Or maybe it's just myself feeling a bit uh, conspicuous, but I suppose that goes with the territory. Anyway, here we go. Uh, the first section of Nehemiah 8. Thank you, that's great. Um, the people have all gathered. If we look at chapter uh, 7, that would indicate that well in excess of 50,000 people, I would imagine, uh, are gathering to this occasion. It's the first day of the seventh month uh, in the Hebrew year. That means this is the Feast of Trumpets. And it kind of begins a, a season of feasting and celebration. Uh, so the Feast of Trumpets would lead to the Day of Atonement, which would lead to the Feast of Ta- Tabernacles or the Feast of uh, Booths, which um, uh, follows on from the verses that we read in the next part of this uh, chapter. So it's kind of partway through the year. It's the seventh month. But this is somehow perhaps akin for us to Christmas and New Year rolled in together at the time of a harvest festival. Um, harvest Festival now, in a more of an urban society, might not be such a big deal, but it's kind of at that time of year. That's what's prompting the people to get together, to, to kind of give thanks to God for what he's provided. And they're going to trust him to provide for what is to come as well. So it's a, it's a celebration. It's a time when the whole nation is uh, gathering. And it brings us into this, this season of festivities. Not only that, but obviously they've got the the recent encouragement of the wall being rebuilt, all the progress they've seen uh, in Jerusalem. This is a time to celebrate. And as we look in this uh, first few verses of chapter 8, we say, well, what is this time of celebration about? What is going on here? Well, Firstly, what we see this is about is, this is about the people and the book. Number one, it's about the people and uh, the book. Just as a kind of fairly simple tip, really, looking through a passage like this, you think, well, well what is this about? Sometimes the, the clue will be that there are certain phrases or certain words that just keep cropping up. Um, and so, some would say they're, they're parrot words. It's like a we keep getting reminded of this. Um, so Ezra the scribe is told to bring out the book of the law of Moses. And that's one of the phrases which is repeated through uh, this passage. Um, the book, the book, the book. In verse 3, the people listen attentively to the book of the law. Uh, and there's a number of other occasions um, as well. So they are gathering. And this is a time where they are they're gathering to God's 
word. They have not been able to do this so much um, whilst they've been in exile. Uh, but this presents uh, an, an opportunity to do what had always uh, been part of their their season. Perhaps even it, it roughly equates to what was happening or what Moses was suggesting, instructing them in, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 31. It says there in verse 9, Deuteronomy 31 and verse 9, that Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and uh, to all the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, in the year for cancelling debts during the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. Assemble the people men, women and children and the aliens living in your towns so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Their children who do not know this law must hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So that's even before they'd gone into their promised land. Moses had had written uh, the book of the law. He'd, He'd written the whole Torah the whole, the first five books of the Bible. Now perhaps he's referring to reading all five books of the Bible. Perhaps he's referring to reading the whole of Deuteronomy. Uh, either way, it's a pretty big deal. They are giving their attention to the book of the law. Reminding them, themselves of what it, what it means to be God's people. And as they gather, we see some tremendously remarkable things about this company of people. They are single-minded. All the people assembled as one man, unified. Men, women, and others who are able to understand. It kind of raises the question, well, what did they do with the people who couldn't understand? Um, Sent them off somewhere else. But anyway, the point is being made that that all the people um, were gathering together. They're single-minded. They are eager. Notice how this is a clearly an organized event, and yet it's the people who tell Ezra, the scribe, bring out the book. Um, And he read for at least six, possibly eight hours um, a day. From daybreak through to noon, he was reading uh, the word of God. And they are eager. It describes how they also listened attentively. Now, they don't have their own copy of the Bible, or the vast majority of them uh, won't do. They're, they're oral learners. They learn by hearing. They probably are better than we are at retaining information that they've heard, uh, because that was what was the typical way uh, for them. They weren't those who typically learnt by reading, because they didn't have their own copies. But they are yearning for God's truth. They cannot have enough of it. And also we see that they are... They're responsive. I love the way that almost we, we kind of get a glimpse of what this is about, and then it goes over the details in, in different ways. And we just we get, for example, that in verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. This is such a special occasion that the details are getting uh, recorded. Even the people who are stood around him, uh, their names are included. And then it goes back again, almost like a slow motion recap. Ezra opened the book. Um, this is a dramatic moment in the people's history. 
And all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. They haven't heard anything yet. But kind of reverence and desire and honour for God mean, again, whether it's spontaneous or organised or who knows, that they're responding to God's word and they stand to their feet. Ezra praised the Lord in verse 6, the great God. And again, all the people lifted their hands and responded, kind of, Amen, Amen. Yes, may it be so. Uh, And then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is a special, holy moment. Something of the weight of this time uh, is, is kind of resonating with God's people and they're responding to him. I don't think they need to be told precisely uh, what to do. This is not just a kind of mechanical ritual. Their hearts are involved. This is, this is a real response, a real desire. They're responding with their bodies. They're standing up. They're responding in humility. They're bowing down. Uh, they're responding with their voices, joining in, glorifying God. And the day's not even started yet. They've not even heard anything. This, these people are eager. They're teachable as well. Um, so you kind of get the impression that this this six hours was kind of punctuated. Ezra, standing on this platform, speaking to tens of thousands of people, um, would read out a portion of the scripture, and then they'd probably break down into, into small groups, because we're told that the Levites get involved. And um, we're told that they, in verse 8, read uh, from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. So you kind of get together, get the idea that everybody is together, this big massive company of people, tens of thousands, and they break into small groups, perhaps of just a couple thousand. Um, so they can kind of go through, well, this is what that means. And um, let's not miss the significance of that. And uh, for some of them, that might mean actually, they needed to have it not only explained, but they needed to have it translated uh, because Hebrew was not any longer their first language. Many of these people had been in exile uh, for years, and their first tongue uh, would have been something else. So perhaps they were getting used again to, to Hebrew, and they need the meaning and the significance of things um, to be pointed out. So they're giving their attention to what's spoken from the platform, but they're digging into it as a small core group <laughs> of a few thousand um, so it's a scene of devotion. They're standing in awe before God. And really it's a, it's a hallmark of revival. Um, when the church was born in the days after Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven, we're told in the book of Acts that Peter, one of the apostles, stood up and he spoke to a great group of people who had gathered uh, and, and thereafter, our people were responding to God, um, believing in Jesus and receiving forgiveness that only comes in him. It says in, uh, in Acts 2 verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. There are some other things that they devoted themselves to as well, like fellowship, just sharing life together and prayer and breaking bread, just as Jesus had done uh, with his disciples. They were absolutely devoted. I think that also speaks of this single-minded, eager, passionate 
attentive, teachable desire to respond to everything they heard. And they wanted to hear more. And they came back for more. And perhaps you get the impression that sometimes it was them saying, no, 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 don't stop there. Please keep going. Um, when the apostles were teaching, or here in this situation when uh, Ezra is opening up the w- word of God. So in revival, when God gets hold of his people afresh, there is a profound hunger for God's word. Now that is not artificially kind of whipped up uh, by the leaders, even though this event was clearly organized in, va- in advance, this platform had been built for the occasion, the people themselves say, no, God, we want to feast on God's word. Now, that's not something that is artificially whipped up. At the same time, I suppose it brings a question, well, what would our life be like if the same attitudes, the same desires existed and were kind of fanned into flame in the same measure for us? What would our life be like? What would our church be like? Uh, it might present some uh, some challenges. Um, I kind of was thinking about this in the week. I thought, what, what if I kind of said, amen, let's worship, let's go and have coffee. And, uh, and it's like, we want more, we want more. Well, this is what I've prepared. Sorry, guys, uh, <laughs> I haven't got any more. Quick, quick, go back, go back, <laughs> find some more, uh, dig into some more. But there is that, that, that eagerness. And they're, they're eager for God's presence. They're eager to be the people of the book. And, uh, that'd be glorious. What a glorious occasion to be a part of. But, you know, what could possibly go wrong when this is happening? Well, something does go wrong. This is the surprise of verse 9. Something is happening. They're, the people, the leaders perhaps, they're, they're seeing that the people are just responsive, they're eager, they're teachable, they're seeing and hearing that this is a significant day and this is not just some ritual to go through for the sake of it. They, they want the word of God and they're, they're kind of soaking it up, getting a hold of it, but they begin to hear something. Something isn't quite right. They begin to hear the sound of mourning and weeping. It's a sound that the, that word mourning could be bewailing or lamenting. Weeping could be bemoaning. So as Ezra is bringing the word of God... As they're breaking down into their small groups uh, to dig into it some more, it's like a wave of sorrow is coming on the people. The people are grieving. And maybe it was just a low moan to start with. But their hearts are on their sleeves. And think, well, this is a glorious occasion. This is a time to gather. This is a new season of of feasting and festivities and Yes, being God's people gathering together again. Maybe they've not yet. They've not had the opportunity to do this for ever, for ages. Now they can, but oh, there's just oh no, a bewailing, a bemoaning. I think people were grieving about their 
failures. Let's, let's just say that it was the book of De- Deuteronomy that was being read. Let's just imagine that in the first morning of teaching, Ezra was able to, to get to chapter 31. Perhaps not. Um, but we find out there in Ezra, uh, sorry, in Deuteronomy 31, verse 24, after Moses finished writing in a book the words of this law from the beginning to the end, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. There it will remain as a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. If you have been rebellious against the Lord while I'm still alive and with you, how much more will you rebel after I die? Assemble before me all the elders of your tribes and all your officials so that I can speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to testify against them. For I know that after my death you are sure to become utterly corrupt and to turn from the way I have commanded you. In days to come, disaster will fall upon you because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord and provoke him to anger by what your hands have made. And, unfortunately, Moses was proved right. Hence the book of Nehemiah. Hence this time of restoration. Hence the fact that all of God's people who turned away from God got sent into exile. They provoked him to anger. This is how to live. This is God's good law. This is how life works out best. This is how, this is what is available. Relationship with me. I'm the God who rescued you from slavery in Egypt. I brought you and I planted you in your own land. I've given you this city. I've given you this temple. I dwell among you. Here are all the promises that you can expect to experience by virtue of being my people and obeying my word. Because I have chosen you and you are my treasured possession. But I know, Moses would say, that when you go, when I've gone, you're going to turn your back on God. You're going to wander away and disaster is going to come upon you. And so as they're hearing the word of God, saying it could have been so good if we had seized hold of the promises and walked with our God in obedience, living life his way. It could have been so good. But even on this day of feasting, we can't help but acknowledge that we turned away. And so now they are grieving about their failures. Moses was proved right and the people know it. They were cut to the heart. I wonder if they were feeling like the prodigal son. Jesus told a story um, in the book of Luke of the lost son. It was a way in some way of, of explaining what was happening at that time. People were returning to God. People were coming back to him. And he tells this story about this, this son in Luke chapter 15, who had it all really. He was, 
with his dad, brother and family as well, working the land, part of the family. But he decided, actually, I think my life would be best if I didn't have to live with my dad anymore. If I didn't have to live life his way. True freedom, true joy, true happiness is away from him. I've had enough. So, Father, why don't you give me my inheritance early? I don't want to wait until you die to get my inheritance, to get what's coming my way. I want that wealth. I want that now. And therefore, it's as if he was saying, I I would rather that you were dead. Here's a nation who for generations before the exile, as it were, had turned away from God as their father and was saying, we think life will work best if we ignore you. We think life will work out best if we turn away from you. We want the inheritance, we want the land, we want the good things, but we don't want you. Actually, we've found some other gods. we found some other things to worship And you are an inconvenient reminder that we shouldn't be doing that. And so we're leaving home. We're leaving God. We're turning away. We're going our own way. That's what the whole nation had done. And in the story, the parable of the lost son, that's what the son did. And life went wrong. He lived it up for a while, but he was living it down for a long time. And so he was had to hire himself out um, in a foreign land, and his job was to feed the pigs. And in verse 16 of Luke 15, we told he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He has hit rock bottom. He thought this would be a good idea. He thought it would be fun. He thought that true joy would lie in this direction, but disaster has come upon him. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. He realized, well, perhaps there's a lifeline again. I know I've blown it. I know it's never going to be like it was before. I know I can't be welcomed back in that way, but perhaps I can still kind of carve out some meaningful life, some reasonable existence, by going back, admittedly, tail between my legs, cap in my hand, saying, just just treat me like a hired man now. Will you hire me? Can I, can I come back? I understand... You know, it'll be different, but it's not gone, it's not gone well. He, he came to his senses. Maybe at this point in Israel's history, they've come to their senses. They've gathered, they've heard the book of the law written out, and they've, they've realized as a nation and as multiple generations, we blew it. We blew it. We turned away. We thought life would make sense. Lived out our way. But it didn't. 
it was disaster. And uh, just look at what we've done. And they can be looking back and just realizing all the, all the lost time. Prodigal son means wasteful son. Look at the time we've wasted. Look at the lives we've wasted. Think about where we could, have, we, we could be right now if we hadn't turned away. We'd be in such a better position right now. We wouldn't have even had to rebuild the, these walls because we, have, we wouldn't have been taken captive in the first place. The walls wouldn't have got broken down. Jerusalem would never have become desolate. This place could already be a vibrant community blessing the world. As it is, it's still empty and spacious. Oh, if only. They're full of regrets. They're cut to the heart. They're, they're grieving for the life they didn't lead. The lost years spent rebelling away from God. Oh, what have we done? That's the, that's the effect that God's word has had on them. They are mourning on a holy day. What is this chapter about? It's about the people in the book. Wonderful. But then it's also about oh, mourning on a holy day. And, um, well, surely that's okay, actually. God is dealing with them, isn't he? God is at work. This is a sign that their hearts are now tender towards God. They're, they're responding to him. They're teachable. They're paying attention. They didn't used to do that. They're paying attention to God's word, whereas before it might as well have just been lost in a cupboard somewhere. Now they're eager. They're single-minded. They're teachable. And, well, surely this is part of what God is doing. God is bringing to the point of, of repentance and seeing, yeah, you really did mess up and you can never sort yourself out and uh, all of that kind of stuff. Maybe that's important. Surely it's a good thing that they were brought to that realization. In a way, yes. But mostly, no. This was not a good thing. In some way, the word of God has had the wrong effect on them. Why is that? Well, here's another, another parrot phrase. Here's another thing that keeps getting repeated. This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, we're told in verse 9, when Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites realize this kind of moaning grief and, and, and weeping is happening. So there it is. Nehemiah again says, this day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve. In verse 10 and in verse 11, the Levites say, be still. This is a sacred day. Do not grieve. What? Seems a bit odd. Well, the point is this. We're told three times, the day is sacred. Do not mourn. This day is holy. It's a holy day. So don't grieve. In other words, holiness and gloom don't go well together. They're not a good match, which is interesting because if I were to introduce someone to you later on, I said, oh, oh come, I've got someone to, I want you to meet. Uh, they're just three in the other room, so come with me. They are really holy. I think you'll, you know, you'll benefit from some time with them. So, so come on through. Now hopefully that wouldn't actually be unusual. I could say that of many people in this room. Come, come and have a chat. They're holy. 
Um, but if you didn't know who I was about to introduce you to, what kind of image, what impression would you have in your mind? Oh, they've been described as a holy person. Or if we were to say, yeah, we're, as a church, we're going to um, organize something, do something that we've not done before. And we've not done it by this name. But uh, in a few weeks' time, we want you to know, okay, you know what an altogether, you might know what an altogether is, last Sunday of the month, members of this church all gather together, don't meet in two separate congregations, another story. So we've got all-togethers, right, we know where we stand. We've got prayer meetings on a Friday night, we know where we stand. We've got a family night uh, every kind of six weeks or thereabouts where we break bread together uh, for those who are members of the church. Right, well, we, we're familiar with a family night. Midweek, I meet in small groups and there's core group night. What if we were to say, right, there's a new thing. We are going to have a holy day. Um, so prepare yourself on Saturday or whatever. As a church, we're going to have a holy day. Great. Uh, and if we didn't explain anything about it, what would be in your mind? What is that? I think holiness in our minds is, we've got a misconception that to be holy actually means to be gloomy. That being holy means being somber and very serious. And you've given yourself to the word of God. And you can talk about what it says. You can quote it quite well. And you are an expert at denying yourself worldly pleasures. And therefore you are holy. Your wardrobe has been affected by that change. I won't say where you shop, but it's serious. Maybe even if you are really, really holy, it's just got to be suit and tie. Forget the check shirt, that's way, way too happy for holiness. Um, uh, anyway, so conjure in your mind this, this person who's just been described as holy, or this event that's been described as, as holy. We're thinking, probably, possibly, that sounds a bit doer. That sounds a bit somber. That sounds a bit serious. That person might be a little bit drab. A bit of a killjoy. A bit awkward. And um, so we might think holiness and gloom go very well together um, in the way that we kind of uh, interpret things. Well, actually, the Bible is saying, no, this is, a, this is a holy day. This is a special time. Gloom and mourning doesn't belong. And what's bizarre is that actually later on, there will be a time for repentance. And often we might think, no, the appropriate thing is to be gloomy first, repent first, and then have fun when you've got restored with God and so on. But actually what we see here is, first thing is, no, 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 no. If you're feeling gloomy right now, having heard the word of God, you've got the wrong end of the stick. And so they've got to kind of interrupt proceedings. Nehemiah, Ezra and the others realize, no, no, this isn't right. Don't don't mourn. Don't weep. Because this this whole occasion is about joy. This whole occasion is about celebrating. So they're told... Yeah, what is this about? We've seen it's about the people in the book. It's about mourning on a holy day, but that's out of place. This is about joy. 
So they're told not to mourn. They're told not to grieve. This was a feast to be celebrated, but the people are too focused on the reasons to grieve. The people, in hearing the law and hearing the Bible, have been too focused on what's behind them. And they've been too focused on lamenting. And they've been too focused on their sin and what they've done. It's like driving along uh, and being too focused on the rear view mirror. If you fix your eyes there, things aren't really going to work out too well. The idea is, when driving or riding a bike, you look that way. You don't fix your eyes behind you. You don't keep... Now, you might get distracted by something that's there, kind of rearing up with its headlights and someone's getting a bit too close or kind of you just spotted something peculiar. But, But if you fix your eyes on what's behind, you're not going to move forward very well. Either you're going to become incredibly tentative and slow right down or you're just going to get really, really reckless and uh, one way or another have an accident. So it does make sense from time to time. We need to look back. We need to glance over our shoulder. We need to see where we've come from. We need to remember where we've been. And that can mean actually remembering who I was and what I got up to. My remembering where I would be if God hadn't intervened in my life. If I'm a Christian, God broke into my life and he chose me and he rescued me and he gave me a new life. Well, that's what I'm focused on. Every now and again, I'm going to just remember, goodness me, that's where I come from. Thank God that's where I am now and that's where I'm I'm heading, but their their eyes are absolutely fixed on what's behind. Now, time for repentance would come. There is time to to recognise sin, to repent, to turn away from it, to have that kind of dealing with God. Sin is not to be ignored, but actually, oddly, it's getting postponed. No, we're going to celebrate first, and so the leaders pipe up with that. The day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Nehemiah adds something incredibly helpful. Sometimes it's helpful not just to say, don't do this. Don't do that. Don't mourn. What do you mean? Just don't mourn. Oh, don't weep. Oh, okay. What? Nehemiah, ever the practical man, gives a positive instruction. He says, this is how we are going to avoid mourning and weeping, and this is how we're going to celebrate. He says in verse 10, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our God. Do not grieve. It's like, go and have a brilliant meal. Again, what does holiness... What, if, if I say we're going to have a holy meal, what does that conjure up? I don't know. Let's forget it. Um, <laughs> Nehemiah is saying, okay... We've heard the word of God. It's now the middle of the day. We've been listening to this for six hours and feasting on it. Now go and feast on some food. Go and have some quality time. Go and celebrate. Go and nourish yourself. Get some good food and good drink in your belly. See as well, also, his, his concern is always for all the people. And so, again... And we've seen this before in terms of his own example. He's got a concern for those who don't have anything prepared, for those who've not come ready. So there are people that can get out their amazing hampers they brought with them. And there are people thinking, we just legged it because we were running late and we've not got anything with us. 
well, no, you're included. We are one people together. So actually, let's just share what we've got and your sweeties. Um, so, so there we have it, this, this occasion for celebrating. So to get them off the mark, some practical encouragement. Go and get some food. And he also says, you know, do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What is this passage about? It's about joy. What is it about? It's about joy that strengthens us. But what does that phrase mean? For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Was it just put there, Nehemiah, this very forward-thinking guy, could think, well, in the 21st century, Christian worship songwriters are going to need some stock phrases uh, to put into their their songs. And we're going to sing them, and we love them. But they kind of remain slightly nebulous to us. But, yeah, it's a great song, isn't it? Um, <laughs> is it there uh, for that reason? Well, he's... It's not just a standalone phrase, actually. I'm sure the songs that include it are good. That's slightly cheeky of me. Uh, forget that. Scrub it out of your notes. What does it mean? The joy of the Lord is our strength. Of course it is, but what does that mean? I think it means two things uh, as we wrap up um, towards the end of the message. It means, firstly, that our joy is in God. Therefore, it's an instruction. Find your joy in God. There'll be times when actually we don't easily find it in circumstances uh, and what life involves and might throw at you, but find your joy in God. It's like it's a muscle. Your joy is a muscle. That muscle needs to be exercised. And so Nehemiah is saying, almost like Ben said at the outset, we're going at the outset, we're going to be deliberate. We're going to choose. We're going to choose to exercise. The muscle of our joy. We are going to make a decision to do what is involved in celebrating. We're going to gather together. We're going to celebrate. We're going to eat. We're going to be remembering God. We're going to be remembering all that he has done so far. All that he has done for us. So it doesn't mean that uh, weeping or grief is banned. And obviously repenting of sin isn't banned as well, but it's a, it's a challenge, it's an encouragement. Exercise your joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. As we exercise, as it were, that muscle of celebration, our joy strengthens us. We're not likely to be strengthened by mourning or weeping. We're not likely to be strengthened by fixating on our sin and our lack of worthiness. I'm just a terrible sinner, Lord, and here's the list of all the things I know I have done. And I fixate here, and I, I'm just looking backwards, or I'm fixing my eyes in the rear view mirror. That sometimes is important for us to Often it can be important for us to confess sin and repent and deal with it and turn away from it. But it's unlikely to strengthen us. So we want to strengthen our joy. Amidst many trials, the Apostle Paul was a joyful man. He could write the letter to the Philippians in the New Testament. And he could comment within that letter on what some of his trials, some of his challenges what some of his uh, suffering involved, but with no lack of integrity, he could tell the people in Philippians 4 and verse 4, 
Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. The Bible commands God's people to be joyful. The Bible commands us and instructs us to rejoice. To exercise that muscle. To celebrate. Paul was a joyful guy, even though he was amidst all of those challenges. Now, again, it's not putting on an air of unreality. Just turn again, or turn with me to uh, to Romans 12 um, and verse 12. Again, it's a similar instruction. In light of all that God has done, in in light of his wonderful mercies, his wonderful salvation, an instruction comes in Romans 12, verse 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. For Paul, it's not unusual to put the same things, put those things in the same sentence. That somehow joyful hope can coexist right alongside affliction and faithful prayer. This is the whole of life. So it's not denying reality, but no, be joyful. Find your joy. In God, it's easy for us, uh, perhaps particularly, uh, yeah, for the Brits, uh, to exercise other muscles, uh, to exercise cynicism, or kind of despondency, or just a negative outtake on things, and sadness. We are being encouraged and exhorted. Uh, find your joy in God. Exercise your joy and allow that joy to strengthen you. But I think, whilst taking it as that kind of encouragement and exhortation, here's one other thing that I think this brings to our attention. This is not only talking about our joy in God. I think this is reminding us of God's joy in us. Just read it in that sense. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's a new thought. God's joy over his people. So yes, there was this prodigal son. The whole nation of Israel that could look back on their wasteful years of rebellion, coming back to God. And having a heavy heart. But they're being reunited with their loving Heavenly Father. Turn with me back again to Luke 15. We see what was going on for the prodigal son. Verse 20. So he got up. And admittedly with a heavy heart. Acknowledging that it would never be the same. That maybe his father might hire him but not love him and accept him, he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring 
the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. What happened first? They celebrated. Maybe there were conversations down the line which would involve confession and repentance and all of that kind of necessary stuff as this returning son kind of got restored into the family, got restored into relationship with his father. But where does it, what's the overriding mood here? What's going on? What's the father's overriding mood is one of joy. God's people here in Nehemiah are, as it were, being reborn. And God is happy. Weeping made sense in Babylon. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. But now, by the walls of Jerusalem, God has brought them back. They've come home. God is welcoming them. And on the first day of the seventh month, it's a feast. It's a celebration. This is a joyful moment. And God is happy. So it doesn't make sense for us to mourn. It doesn't make sense for us to fixate on what's behind us. It doesn't make sense to stay in that place. It makes sense to rejoice and rejoice in God. Here's how the prophet Zephaniah puts it, looking forward to this day that they were experiencing. In Zephaniah 3, which you are forgiven for not being able to find immediately, hence putting a bookmark in it. And verse 14, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your hearts, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The sorrows for the appointed feasts I will remove from you. They're a burden and a reproach to you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I'll rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they, put, where they were put to shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. God here is continuing the process of restoring their fortunes. And God, therefore, is taking great delight in them, quietening them with his love and rejoicing over them with singing. He does the same for us. If that's what it was like for them before Jesus died, before Jesus was risen to new life, before Jesus ascended to heaven, how much more is it for us now and today 
um, who live beyond that time. If we have received Jesus, if we have believed in Jesus, the Son of God, who came to take upon himself all my sin, all my punishment that's been taken away from me and placed on him. What a glorious situation we are in. So it seems a little bit strange to be saying, there's a time for repentance, but now is a time for rejoicing. Now is a time for great joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Being a people of the book, being God's people, should also mean being a people of joy. Because we've got a God who is joyful, that he's restored the fortunes of people. Who, Yes, they've been far away. They did turn their backs. You might be able to think very easily, very vividly, Memories might be, might come to your mind of things, whether recent or long gone. And you think that goes to show how far I had wandered away from him. But something is going wrong. Even if we give ourselves to every page of scripture, something's going wrong if joy is not manifest in some way amongst us it's not just a case of come on everybody gee yourself up there is a place for saying yes the joy of the lord is our strength our joy in him but wonderfully also god's joy in us amen let's pray